Please welcome Tosh Berman and Tom Anderson. Art Gomfunkel and Paul Simon. <laughs> I said the same thing before. I like to repeat my jokes. Huh? I think maybe the other way around. We do things differently in Los Angeles. Um, first of all, um, I'm here to discuss this incredible, excellent book with the author Tom Anderson. And um, I have read many, many books on the cinema. I consider myself probably the, mm, I don't know, me, probably the number one knowledgeable person about cinema overall. Um, I studied Lumiere Brothers when I was like, uh, like when I was like 10 or 11. I was really into it. it was, there was no dialogue in that movie, so it was very easy for me as a child to study those films. And, um, and uh, my first toy was actually a, a 16 millimeter projector. So I used to watch, you know, I, showed, I watched all the classics. And um, anyway, uh, so I read a lot of film books in my life. Um, all of them are terrible. <laughs> Except <laughs> Tom's book, Slow Writing. The best book on cinema ever. And I'm not I'm not exaggerating I'm not I'm not exaggerating about this. It's it's an incredible read. He doesn't write over the reader. It's a very, you, you, you have ability to invite the reader to join your world. And so what's amazing about Tom is that he's a fascinating person. I would even say an incredible person. I hope you don't mind me saying that in front of you. And with his book, you're sort of seduced into his world and his love and his feelings about the cinema world and its many, many, many forms and styles. And um, so I read this book. And I read it again after I finished reading it. And I read it twice. And it's just like the best book I ever, um, I ever one of the best books on cinema I've ever read, considering all the other cinema books are terrible. But um, so one of the questions I want to f first ask you about um, is a child, oh, I met, as a child, you went to church at one time. And I've heard that you actually went to church with Ronald Reagan. What, 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 was, that a, what was that like? <laughs> I, guess, I guess that's in the book somewhere, huh? <laughs> um, it is. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was thinking about that the other day. Me too. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, well, you know, um, what can I say? Nobody liked him, so. <laughs> so I, I think, um, you know, to me, I guess I, yeah, I knew he was a celebrity. Um, and I knew, I knew, uh, I knew my parents didn't like him, so I didn't like him. So a negative feeling about this presence in the church. Yeah, and also that of, uh, of, um, What's her name? Nan Nancy? Nancy? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so. Um, 
Is she still alive? No. Oh, no, she passed away, unfortunately. Um, so, um, you know, what I could think... I, could, hmm? Just some more... Um, I, won't, I won't comment on what you said, but... Um, um, I'm a great admirer of your press and your books, so... Thank you. I'm, I'm, I, I don't believe you. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> um, I'm really happy that you agreed to... Uh, you know, be here with me tonight. Well, thanks very much. Well, Mark Weber, who's the publisher of Visible Press, a great press out of London, um, I begged him for me to do this. <laughs> he said no. <laughs> and I said, well, you, I, I live in Los Angeles. Anyway, it was a long conversation. But, yeah. But he, 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 he gave me this honor to be here. Yeah. So I think it'll be okay. And also, I have to say that um, it was, um, yeah. I've, I've, over the years, I've I've come in here a lot and um, never never actually bought any books. But um, uh, I, I used to come in and read a little book, read a little bit from some of the books, and it would like inspire me to go home and write. So. Same here. I owe a lot. I to bought. I bought some books here. I owe a lot to this place, and um, and I used to, uh, I think, dream of uh, having my book in the window. Although I was hoping it would be the my book, Los Angeles Plays Itself, which, well, that hasn't worked out yet. <laughs> um, Wait, that's a movie, though. Yeah, but it's going to be a book also. But that has that hasn't worked out because I haven't written it. So, but uh, I, I read it's coming out in February. I never. 2018. Sometime, yeah, sometime. Sometime, okay. Not, um, anyway, so. Um, well, we have. Well, you did write slow writing. Yeah. Well, I never expected this book to to happen, um, actually. So. When I think okay, when I think of the name Tom Anderson, I always think of Los Angeles. Hmm. Maybe because of the film, the documentary, but you were not born in Los Angeles, correct? Right. So, were you were you really young when you when you came upon Los Angeles? Yeah, four. I think I just turned four. Maybe I was three, but anyway, around then, yeah. Do you remember your first like when you first came? Or what? It was a child. What were your feelings about Los Angeles when you were living here? Uh, I do. I I, I I remember the day it snowed. That was a pretty vivid memory. I think that was in 1950. And I remembered the um, um, I remember getting up to see the uh, the bomb tests in Nevada, which um, you could see from here. <laughs> I mean. You, could, you just saw the the flash of light. It wasn't it wasn't intense enough that you had to like worry about blinding yourself. But it was actually visible all the way here. And they always had them uh, like five or six a.m. So uh, our parents would get us up so we could see it <laughs> or uh, watch it on TV. 
Those are some of my first memories, yeah. So destruction and... Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> set up, set up. Um, do you... The question I'm asking you, because I'm sort of going through my own experience, you know, being, I, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, so I feel very in tune to the city, and, and visually I have memories of the city, which doesn't exist anymore. And um, mm-hmm. that's one reason why I asked you that question. But the other question is, um, I have very strong memories of my first movie theater experience, and I was wondering, do you have a, a, a similar type of memory of, of, of your first movie, going to a movie theater? It, it, um, it wasn't necessarily the first, but um, let me see. No, it wasn't the first, but I, I have a really strong memory of going to see um, War of the Worlds, which I guess would have been in 1954, and it was at the, I think it was called the Pico Theater. It was at the corner of um, Pico and Westwood Boulevard. Mm. And... Um, <laughs> Because I was really scared, and uh, we—I know—we sat in the front row in the theater. It was it was a really big theater, and it was packed. And I remember being scared by that movie. Have you watched it again recently? Yeah, I've watched it quite a bit, <laughs> um, many times. <laughs> no, it's not. It doesn't seem that scary now. <laughs> <laughs> um, Although, I mean, it's. I think I think though it's it's pretty great and a lot of you know that it's uh, um, that iconography the the way the uh, Martians looked in the movie is kind of the way that all all space aliens have looked ever since when you when you finally see them with their heads you know when they all die yeah but kind of sort of, they're sort of dandified figures to me they always dress well. Compared to Earthlings, <laughs> well, they have they have better spaceships for sure. Yeah, and you went to USC to yeah. was it for like for, for film classes or I know you studied or not studied, but what you, you went to classes with Arthur Knight being the uh, professor or teacher. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, right about that. And Arthur Knight was a um, a, pr- a, a very prominent film historian and, and a critic. Yeah. Critic. Uh-huh. Wrote for the Saturday Review, which was a mm-hmm. still a kind of big magazine in those days. And was that your first sort of, um, I won't say academic, but your first sort of school introduction to like film study or? Yeah, it's the first. I mean, I went there to study uh, filmmaking. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I've been thinking about that lately too. With all the, you know, all the scandals about that university. Um, and uh, all of its attempts to try to uh, make people believe it's a good university. But I, the, I think the, the problem then is the same as the problem now, that, that um, the students. And uh, <laughs> when, when I was there, I really, I really hated them because they, um, they, they they wouldn't help the teachers out at all, you know. When they were trying to have a discussion, none of them would ever say anything. They really like, um, you know, this. Well, the, the cliche of, of black students who were totally disengaged from what they were studying. Um, and um, it's probably the same now. 
I never heard a student be a pro-teacher like you. Usually it's the students stay together against the teacher, but you, you're, you're, as a student, you're like pro-teacher, pro... Well, I wasn't until I got to that school, yeah. You're, you're like a rebel. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I won't say according to your book, but I got the impression that uh, this is the first time you were in- introduced to uh, works by artist, fi- uh, um, artist films or the underground cinema in America at the time. Um. Yeah, it coincided with my with my years as yeah, with, it coincided with my years as a student at at that school. And um, although it wasn't, well, I, I tell the story of um, in the book about um, how uh, uh, Gregory Mokopoulos and Jack Smith were um, invited to a, a class there, um, a kind of visiting artist class. And should I tell the Sure, please. That's a great story. It's, um, it's, <laughs> it's not that good a story, but anyway. Um, so, um, yeah, and that, that was that was Arthur Knight's class. Um, this was his very popular uh, visiting artist class that everyone attended because um, he would have Hollywood filmmakers come and talk about their latest. But on this particular evening, he had um, yeah Jack Smith and Gregory. And so I got, because I was the only student who had any interest in their work at all, um, I was invited to uh, join them for dinner before at the Roger Young Auditorium, which is the kind of the school teacher's favorite restaurant where they would take guests. And uh, so... Gregory um, was kind of an aristocrat, so afterwards he said, uh, well, that meal was barely edible. <laughs> and then Jack Smith said, are you kidding? That's the best meal I've had in three months. <laughs> uh, you're probably both speaking the truth. <laughs> was, um, I'm presuming Jack Smith was a very flamboyant figure at that time. Yeah, he was. I mean, a little, um, a, a little scary the way crazy people can be. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I think more so then than later. At least, at least for me, I found him a little intimidating to talk to. Yeah. So, um, uh, so you start going to. Um Seeking out um, uh, theaters that were showing like artist films or underground cinema, an active, active way at the time, or what? what got yeah, you? in those in, the, in those days, that was the the cinema theater. Really, I think was the only one, which was on um, it was on um, Western, just north of um, Santa Monica Boulevard, and it's it's still there, although it's not a film theater. Um, yeah, they were, uh, they were like, uh, you know, taken to court for showing Scorpio Rising, I guess in, in, uh, in 63, and they were, you know, where, that was where the movies around midnight, movies around midnight began. Um, originally it was, it was under the, it was programmed by, by, uh, John Fless, who actually had a, he had a small, um, 
I don't know if you remember this, the small um, film club, mm-hmm. kind of a series of, of screenings, of not of experimental films so much as kind of classic films, uh, that he had at the Ukrainian Cultural Center over on um, Melrose, I think, which is still there. Um, so, yeah, I was, uh, I was interested in that, yeah. And I went to movies around midnight a lot, yeah. Where uh, these uh, kind of obscure films had giant audiences, but um, but almost everyone in the audience was hostile to the film. It was kind of pe- people came actually to uh, to. Uh, Listen to other people make fun of the movies, mm-hmm. like calling out comments or stuff, or to do so themselves. Um, you um, did you start writing about films at a young age, or I mean, around when you were a student? Um, well. Um, Actually, yeah, in my high school paper, I wrote about I wrote about films, um, which is uh, rather irresponsible, since um, I don't think there were a lot of students in my high school who are interested in my opinion of Ivan the Terrible, but um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> most of what we—that's shocking. I'm be, I'm surprised they were not yeah. totally into that. Um, Yeah, that was a kind of... um, I think I was actually a better writer than than later, but anyway. um, It was kind of a bad experience, though, all in all. You mentioned this... I mean, high school. You mentioned this in the book, but it strikes me that when you write, you don't write review reviews. It seems like you write to communicate not only with the reader, but also with the filmmaker themselves. Is that... Um, is that is that true? That you want lately? I mean, I sort of um, tried to do that. Um, I mean, normally, I, I mean, since I'm not, a, you know, a film critic um, or a professional film critic, I, I don't have occasion to write a let's say uh, against a film, right? So, uh, and I choose. I'm able to well. Just what I write about. At least, at least say yes or no if someone asks. Um, and the only, the only exception, the only newspaper review I ever wrote was about the Crying Game. You gave it a rave review, remember? Because <laughs> everybody loved that movie. Yeah. I mean, everybody um, like raved and raved and loved it, and it was like a, it was like a masterpiece of the time. I know it's weird, huh? And and and, 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 and you're like one of the other. And friends. I came along and wrecked it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing was heard of that movie ever again after my review. <laughs> it, all it takes is one really good writer to write about something, and it's like it's gone. Yeah. It disappears. <laughs> um, it is kind of true, though. I mean, it's not like... Considering how universally it was praised when it came out, it's not, it seems to me it's not remembered that much now. A lot of movies are kind of... Uh, Am I wrong? I don't know. I find a lot of works, like films now, are kind of... Especially from... Uh, when was it made in the 90s? 
Yeah. I feel a lot of times like the way that the marketing and how the whole presentation of a film, it's sort of like you see it and then it goes on, it becomes a DVD and then it becomes something you put on your shelf and it becomes sort of like an object that's not that prominent anymore. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, I think, I think there are a number of, of uh, kind of prominent independent American movies of the 90s that haven't um, aged so well. You, I think probably uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape is another one, actually. You love it. No, you don't love it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't hate it, but I, I, I didn't love it either. Yeah. I saw that film in Japan with, um, with uh, English subtitles. Uh-huh. No, uh, Japanese subtitles. Yeah. It's much better that way. Uh-huh. I, had, I got a more in-depth, um, layered meanings from the film. I don't remember it now, though. I totally forgot about it. Yeah. But you, you have a real strong, not a strong film, but you have a really strong um, sensibility about films, I feel, made like in the 40s to maybe like the late 50s. And there's two, there's two types of film geeks that I know. One is uh, who are totally into like sort of the superhero uh, <laughs> mass market adventure world within a world like Marvel Comics or DC Comics world. And then there's the other side where people are, like to see works that reflect uh, what is you know, quote unquote like real life. And it strikes me that you're very much in tune to films that deal with real life that deals with outside the movie theater or outside your home. And um, um, it seems to me that a lot of the films from the 50s had a strong reflection of what was happening in the world outside, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, do you feel you can comment on that? I, I, I think maybe if they were making these uh, so-called superhero films in the early 1950s, I probably would have... Uh, been interested in them, but they weren't, so I never really had a chance. Um, well, there's also just people like old Hollywood movies, um, which I guess I'm one of those also. You uh, don't strike me as a nostalgic person. Oh, uh, well. Mm-hmm. Kind of? Sentimental? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but, all, but, but, but a lot of the films of the 50s reflect what was happening politically at the time in the world. Yeah. Which is, I think, kind of what makes them interesting, yeah. Including science fiction films, was sort of commenting on the, probably the Red Scare of the time. Yeah, well. yeah, some, for sure. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know about the War of the Worlds, though, exactly what that meant. But, of course, there were... There were Martians. I think, yeah, yeah. Red Planet. Well, that's another movie, you know. No, but they're from a Red Planet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... Okay. Uh, it's true they didn't come from Venus. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you, but you wrote a you did you did you you wrote a book in French about uh, the red uh, Well, I, I didn't write it in French. I I, uh, I wrote it in English, and uh, my friend Noel translated uh, translated into French, and I translated. His essay written in French into English, but it was never published. And 
the screenwriters and the directors of the uh, who are blacklisted, do you feel that they had a huge presence in, in cinema at the time of the 50s and late 40s? Um, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, all I all I was uh, setting out to show was that they, you know, had uh, um, there was something distinctive about their work when they were um, working in Hollywood before the before they were blacklisted. Something distinctive about their work, and um, uh, well, just that they had some influence upon uh, Hollywood films, which. Uh, before I wrote was something that that uh, was denied, so, and that's that's what we tried to do in the in the film we made, Red Hollywood. It was kind of a case study, you might say, a, a sample of those films and uh, an attempt to show what was distinctive about them, which is a subject that you know one could approach in many different ways, also, but. Yeah. Did you approach it like uh, Los Angeles plays itself? It's like a sort of like yeah, film. yeah. I mean, um, really, thanks to Noel, who was kind of more um, more insistent upon um, um, doing kind of complete research. I think we might have looked at, at uh, as many as many films to make that movie as I as I did to make Los Angeles plays itself. But of course there are very, very few actually uh, appeared. But we tried to look at we tried to look at every every movie by someone who was um, blacklisted that had any sort of uh, political content. Or from from the notices it received seemed to have political content, which of course is not everything. Was it really obvious for an audience? Um, and then we we also read some scripts, which was interesting because there were quite often there were there were movies um, that, that earlier had a had some content that was completely uh, completely vanished as the as the script went through more and more revisions. And, um, did the audience pick up on the political implications of the, when it was re- those films were originally released? Um, I mean, I, I suppose that might be a controversial question, but my sense is um, that uh, um, that in fact audiences do, um, even when uh, even when they're they're not aware of it, because when they're not aware of it, that just means that it's part of the of the general, uh, let's say ideological consensus of the time so of course they're not aware of it uh, it also means that if the film departs from that they they're also aware of it although I mean you know most most people don't go around talking about the political meanings of films but they you know they, they certainly affect us and um, actually um, it, I think uh, When I was young, um, I was probably, um, uh, I think I was, um, again, this is in the 1950s, influenced by, uh, by um, 
um, movies, but uh, particularly, of course, uh, television. And it was a, the the blacklist forced a number of writers from uh, writing movies to writing television under pseudonyms. So I think, um, well, there are two series that had a, I think, an effect on me. One was uh, Robin Hood, which was written by Ring Lardner Jr., and the other one was uh, You Were There, which a lot of it was written by Abraham Polanski. So the blacklist actually might have increased the, the, the political effectiveness of some of these writers because they could be a little more... Um, you know, explicit in a, in programs like uh, Robin Hood or uh, or You Were There, which was about um, well, famous you know famous events of the past uh, with uh, Walter Cronkite reporting them. Yeah. I used to watch Robin Hood. Yeah, Richard Green. Yeah, yeah. Did you like it? I loved it. Yeah, me too. I love it because he stole from the wealthy and he gave it to the poor. Yeah. And he was really good with a bow and arrow. Mm-hmm. Never misses Mark. <laughs> yeah, he was a good shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a British show, wasn't it? Was yeah. It, so yeah, yeah, it's okay. yeah. 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 Um, advancing a little bit more, I was and really. It was, it was you know, anti anti-author- authority, which I'm sure we both appreciated. Absolutely. Yeah. Phil Spector. Yeah. <laughs> Phil Spector. You write a little bit about Phil. That we we actually we saw the same documentary on Phil Spector, and you write about it in your book a little bit. Yeah. The agony and the ecstasy of Phil Spector. And what, my, uh, what do you find intriguing about uh, uh, about Phil Spector? Spector? I, I'm actually a huge Phil Spector fan. Yeah, I mean, I think me too. I mean, how can you not be? Um, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, at least in his time. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I was kind of, um, I didn't appreciate the way the press treated him when, his, when he was on trial because um, they made him out to be just this kind of freak and. Um, completely ignored the fact that he was uh, an important uh, contributor to American culture in his time. Yeah. Um, have you have you uh, have you ever met him? No, have you? I have. Yeah. I had a uh, I had a great <laughs> He's a dangerous man. <laughs> yeah. He was really, he's I met him um, my father was an artist. And he, my dad made a piece called "You Lost That Loving Feeling," and it was actually it was a, it was a, a beautiful piece he made that was in tribute to Phil Spector. And Phil Spector heard about this piece, and he came to my dad's studio, and he came in a big black car. It was a driver, Ronnie Spector, mm-hmm. and him, and he had like a gold cane, and he was like very like velvet clothing, mm-hmm. and he went and he said, I remember he said. Uh, because he pulled up in the driveway in my dad's studio and he went, uh, Berman, Berman. You know, I started like, he didn't knock on the door. He started like, Berman. You know, he started pointing his cane at, you know. And uh, he purchased the, the, the work, which I, it's somewhere in his collection. Whatever happened to that collection, I don't know. Um, but then the second time I met him, 
um, it was after my father passed away and he showed up at my father's opening my father had a show like a year later after he passed away and he um, he came with a bodyguard and basically he was going through the crowd there going to each person and saying he's going he actually just said he, like if two people were having a chat chat chit chat among each other he would go up to him and said you know something I can I could have you beaten up right now <laughs> he said see the guy behind me you know it's like some big guy behind him I'll just snap my fingers and he'll take care of you <laughs> and so he's going around as an opening to each not everybody but like particular people and um um, and I met him as a child or as a young teenager and I had a friend at the time who so a lot of people thought we looked very much alike and we, people confused us you know, physically and he Spectre was speaking to my friend thinking there was me and then finally my friend said I'm not Tosh which really set him off as you can imagine and he told my friend bring Tosh over here so my friend says, Phil Spector wants to speak to you. That's all he said to me. I said, oh, great. You know, maybe say hello. Because I didn't know anything was happening. I didn't pick up any bad vibes or anything. So I went up to him. And I, said, uh, I said, hello. I said, hi, Phil. And he went to me. He, said, he looked at me and he said, how do I know it's you? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, this is like a great sort of existential moment with a legend. You know, cause, like Phil Spector. And, you know, it's like this is... You probably tell this. You probably, told, probably said this is the Righteous Brothers. I imagine, like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. So, so then it became very weird and dark <laughs> conversation, and I sort of removed myself from, you know, from his orbit in a way. And then I saw him once more, and I saw him again at another opening of my dad. And he was perfectly fine, but back to your, th- he's obviously a very ill man. <laughs> And why nobody treat him for uh, illness is sort of beyond me. I mean, what he, I mean, it's de- for sure with his interest in guns and his sort of weird sexuality, it's obviously somebody that gets shot. That's not a surprise to anybody. So, and the fact that he's put on trial, and, and I know you mentioned about uh, um, allowing uh, people to testify that he did pull guns mm-hmm. on at least five women. Mm-hmm. And God, he pulled gun and apparently on everybody almost. I mean, you know. So it's. So I, I do agree with you about that aspect of, um, of the trial aspect that he. Oh. It was. I don't feel it was really a fair trial. Yeah. But yeah. On the other hand, I think he did it. I mean. <laughs> but still, as a, if we're speaking in a legal legal sense, I feel he he, he should have. Um, you know. Yeah. Um, the only the only point I was making was that the 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 the, the testimony of the of the women who um, who uh, said that he had previously pulled guns on them shouldn't have been allowed at the trial under California laws of evidence, uh, but the uh, appeals court ruled that it was all right in a very uh, well. You can read it on. Um, you can read the opinion on the internet. It's very um, tortured in its reasoning, I would say. Um, it's, it's the same judge who uh, 
gave the defendants in the Rodney King beating trial a change of venue they wanted. To a better neighborhood, right? Just somewhere <laughs> else, yeah. I mean, you know. Uh, this judge wasn't responsible for, you know, it ending up where it was. Just that she agreed to the change of venue motion. Um, I think it mentions in the book briefly... But, yeah, it's... Uh, I quote what my friend Eric Otto said that um, I wouldn't about Phil Spector. He said I wouldn't want to have lunch with him, but I'd like to eavesdrop from the next table. Two tables down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two tables down. Um, there's also I'm sorry, jumping from one subject subject because this book covers a lot. I'm not going to cover everything, but, but you write some interesting things about uh, Andy Warhol's early films, and. Um, and you start talking about films that last for hours, you know, where you talk about, like, um, uh, uh, Kristen um, McKay, R. McKay's uh, The Clock, for instance, that lasts for 24 hours. And um, what appeal, what, what did you find appealing about, like, say, the early Warhol movies like Eat or, or um, Kiss or um, those early mm-hmm. films? Or... Uh, or sleep, which lasted over um, five hours, which I saw when it premiered in Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> uh, the others, though, like uh, Eat and, and those others were short. They were only like 30, 30 minutes, so that's something else. But just one shot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think if I saw those, I mean, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go see those films today. Um, in fact, when... Uh, Adam, you'll remember when film form showed sleep, I was gone after about 15 minutes, right? Um, um, but at the time, it was it was different. Um, it just um, it allowed for a, for a different kind of uh, experience um, watching a movie. It was it was I think it it was interesting to watch a movie that was. Um, uh, didn't need a spectator. It kind of existed on its own apart from uh, the response that anyone might have to it. And so I think that was what interested me primarily. But it was... Um, it also... I, I mean, I'm not quite sure why I watched most of Sleep, but it was... Um, it didn't. It was a kind of pleasurable experience for me at the time, and um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that more people didn't uh, share that pleasure back then. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.